0: Well, precious real estate, once again, in the Word of God, let me just say again to all the mothers here, a hearty, happy Mother's Day. Um, You certainly have a very high calling in the kingdom of God. Uh, Just reflecting on that, as we even in Sunday school read from 2 Timothy 3, that your children uh, should... Uh, see you as a source of evangelical truth as you uh, teach the gospel to your little ones so that when they grow up they will remember from whom they learn the sacred scriptures and uh, i pray that all of the moms in our church uh, would just flourish uh, in their calling to be a mother and an example exemplary mothers at that you are so appreciated, and I am very appreciative today that uh, my wife got to stand up, even though she's shy and didn't really want to. I told her it's not up to you anymore. You know, it's so funny, right, that Trish would not want to stand up because, I mean, she's so gun ho about, you know, 180 and pro-life and, you know, and all of that, and it's just like, you should know that you're a mother now, <laughs> You know, and uh, but uh, I'm just so thankful, so so excited, very much so, and also excited that our church has uh, survived. Uh, four years, we tolerated each other, <laughs> and then some, right? By God's grace, um, you know, our church is um, you know a church is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Our church is um, by God's grace. Um, right, pretty much exactly the way it was the day that it started. Uh, if you remember, um, some of you, if you were here for the inaugural uh, sermon that I preached out of First Thessalonians chapter 2, um, that's the first sermon I preached for Heritage Grace, and it was a sermon that talked about what are the components of a healthy church, and I know that I talked about how that in order for us to have a successful healthy church, we'd have to be a Christ-centered church. And that we can never move from that as the center. And I'm happy to report that four years later, we have not moved in our commitment that Christ is the center of this church. Christ is the head of the church, and uh, we want to always keep it that way. And um, I know it's Mother's Day, and I don't know if uh, I don't know if I missed Chris Matthews' announcement or not, but just wanted to reiterate: for next year, we're actually going to be postponing our anniversary potluck. Um, next year, and from the years uh, after that, so it doesn't coincide with Mother's Day. We just realize a lot of people are out for Mother's Day. We know that you know we want to devote that time and let let people uh, just enjoy Mother's Day, and we don't want to have any conflicts. We don't want any moms mad at us for having a potluck <laughs> and competing with Mother's Day. Okay, so what we're gonna do is that from from for uh, for next year and. And uh, from there on, we are going to move our anniversary, uh, basically the week after Mother's Day is what we're going to do. So, uh, I don't know, Chris, did you mention that? You did? Okay, I wasn't listening to you, as always. (laughs) My mind is elsewhere, brother, you know. Uh, But just want to just reiterate that and cement that into our practice. So, okay, well, we are, as I said, in very precious real estate here in the book of hebrews let me pray for us again and uh, and then we will begin okay let's pray together father we simply come before you now and as we take a moment here to acknowledge our dependence upon you to acknowledge lord that we are holy and totally dependent for your blessing that without you without your spirit and without you blessing us today with your grace and visiting us today with your presence, Lord, that uh, we will not be able to accomplish what we desire, which is that we want to uh, commune with God and we want, to, uh, we want to grow under the preaching of your word. And we want you to come now and speak to us powerfully through the, inspired, the Spirit-inspired word of God. Father, we need you. We need your help. We need your blessing. We need your hand. And so we just ask, Lord, please bless us. Give me a mouth to speak and give each and every one of us a heart to listen and to hear what it is that you may want to be teaching us today about communion with God and worship. And so thank you. We ask you to be honored and glorified in everything that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 22 to 25 really make up that practical, well, really, what is the beginning of the practical sections of the book of Hebrews. And this is an immensely practical section, verses 22 to 25. Several, uh, what I would consider to be extremely foundational principles for, uh, for a biblical church, for the Christian life, for genuine worship, are all found in this uh, passage of Scripture. Because of that, there is no way that I'm going to take all uh, four of these verses at one time. There's just so much here for our instruction. There's so much foundational truth. For example, what does a healthy church look like? That's something that you know as a pastor, I'm really always just burning and dying to teach on. And I believe verse 24 and 25 really give us some incredible insight into what a new covenant church looks like and how a new covenant church grows and flourishes and and, and prospers in the Lord. And and because of that, I don't want to make that the last point of the sermon today. We want to give it its own uh, attention. We want to give that as the respect that is due to that passage. And so what, what I did is I looked at this text of Scripture and I thought, okay, we've reached the point where we can call the practical theology of the New Covenant. The practical theology of the New Covenant. And what, what, what we're going to cover today is part one of this, of what I am going to, um, Lord willing, take in three sections. This is part one of a three-part uh, series on the practical theology of the New Covenant. And we begin today with what we can entitle genuine worship, genuine worship. Now, we know what the new covenant is. The new covenant is like many of the, or not all of the covenants in the Old Testament and up to this point, but the new covenant is a, a, a sovereign bond that is Uh, sovereignly administered by God and that is sealed with blood. That's what the new covenant is. And Jesus says in Luke 22, this is the covenant in my blood. Jesus sealed the new covenant with His redemptive, sacrificial, atoning blood. And because of it, the new covenant is messianic but it is not only messianic uh, it is also eschatological why because you remember going back to chapter 9 verse 26 we are told that the new covenant signals the consummation of the ages it means that god's redemptive work has been wrapped up in christ to use the language of paul uh, in uh, ephesians ephesians chapter 1 Verse 11 and 12, it is the summing up of all things in Christ. That is what the new covenant represents for us. It ushers in uh, what the Bible refers to as the end times, or really, just putting it quicker, the end. And though we understand that the new covenant inaugurates the end, it does not consummate the end yet. The new covenant will consummate the end when Christ returns. But it is still an eschatological covenant. But we also know that the new covenant, excuse me, we know what what the new covenant promises. It promises to internalize the law of God in the believer. Uh, We saw that, for example, in Jeremiah's prophecy, which is mentioned not only in chapter 8, not only in chapter 9, but reiterated here again in chapter 10, And what it does is that if we go back up to uh, chapter 10 here in verse 16, this new covenant puts God's laws in our hearts. And he, He writes His laws upon the mind. In other words, the new covenant is a covenant of internal transformation where the law of God is literally internalized into the heart, into the mind, through regeneration. So that regeneration is the entry point of the religious life of man. It is where all religion begins for man. When God's Spirit comes to renovate our heart, to make His home within us, we know that that's what the New Covenant promises. Also, the New Covenant is promising to be a superior covenant because it says that it is built on better promises than the Old Covenant. And and part of that is that God will no longer turn away from us. Uh, 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 Jeremiah says that, in fact, that God will not turn away from doing good to us. He will no longer turn away from us because the new covenant is built not on the stipulation of our righteousness, brothers and sisters, It is built on the stipulation and the condition of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And having fulfilled that perfect condition, God now can be favorably disposed to us and not turn His favor away from us. That is absolutely good news for you and I. Because who of us cannot identify ourselves as covenant breakers? Who of us has not failed in the New Covenant? Who of us has not sinned in the New Covenant? And therefore, if it was up to us to keep the New Covenant together, then it would have fallen apart a long time ago. But it is not, because the New Covenant is built not only on better promises, but it is built on the work of a better mediator, Jesus Christ, the mediator that surpasses Moses But we also know that the new covenant results in the doing away of the old and the bringing in of the new. In other words, we are no longer bound to the Old Testament shadows and types. We no longer have to go through the typology or the shadows of the Old Testament sacrifices and sacrificial system, temple worship, the priesthood. But now, and coming to our point here in Hebrews today we have immediate access to God. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus. And through Jesus, we have direct access to the Father. That is what the new covenant results in. It results in a direct communion with God. And therefore, what the author of Hebrews is telling us now is what we should respond with in terms of this New Covenant access with God. And this is what we should respond with. Ready? Unrestrained communion with God. Unhindered communion with God. We should respond with a communion with God that is with abandon. We should should be freely entering into God's presence into his courts with praise, understanding that we have a right standing with God. No longer is the veil prohibiting us from entering in. The veil has been torn, the work has been done, the blood has been shed, and now man can have direct communion with God. It's beautiful. All of this communion language begins in verse 22. Notice the language there, let us draw near. The language of drawing near takes us back to the Old Testament cultists of the tabernacle, of the temple. It is a priesthood language of the priest who was summoned to draw near to the holy God of Israel. But you remember that the Old Testament priest would come into the presence of God as the author of Hebrews has made very careful to point out to us, not with his own blood, not with his own blood, but Jesus came into the holy place and to heaven itself, as it says, with his own blood, with his own sacrifice, which basically means that Jesus is not just like any other sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus is what the Bible or what the book of Hebrews calls the once for all sacrifice of Christ. In other words, it is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It is the sacrifice that makes perfect atonement for sin so that no other sacrifice is ever required afterwards. Matter of fact, the book of Hebrews is going to go on to say that if you go seeking repentance or forgiveness elsewhere, there is no sacrifice of sin remaining for you. In other words, there is no atonement outside of the final atonement of Jesus Christ. And therefore, what the book of Hebrews is summoning us to is to draw near to God on the basis of that sacrifice. Now, more on that in a minute. What I want to do, therefore, is I want to take verse 22 as sort of a paradigm for genuine worship, genuine worship. Worship. After all, that is what Hebrews is calling us to do. To draw near means that it is a summons to worship. Remember, last week we talked about that the book of Hebrews, as it left us there, verses 19 to 21, it leaves us within the veil. It leaves each individual member of the covenant community, in other words, personified as a little high priest who has entered into the Holy of Holies on the basis of Jesus' blood and is there to commune with God in the holy place. It's really amazing the imagery that is being uh, given to us here. And all of that imagery helps us to see a theology of worship, I believe. Let Let me point out several things, therefore, of what genuine worship consists of. I think this is important because so much is done in the name of worship today that you, you, you tend to wonder, does it have anything to do with worship? What's going on today in a lot of the contemporary worship scene? You end up asking yourself, do, is this true worship? What we're seeing all around, you know, uh, there's a recent um, you know, revival going on in Azusa. I think it's called Azusa Now. And uh, what they're doing is gathering thousands, t- literally tens of thousands of youths from all different churches and youth groups and all different people of background, all gathered around to listen to all of these false prophets prophesy over them, speak in tongues out of orders, and claim false miracles, um, and give words of prophecy out of their iPhone. Uh, this is what uh, it constitutes worship in the mind of some people. Um, Reinhard Bonnke, you can see videos online of a million people in Africa gathered for worship. A million people, I'm not exaggerating. Oceans of people shouting and screaming and singing uh, Christian songs, all again under the guise of false teaching. Reinhard Bonnke claims to raise the dead. He has been falsified in his miracles many, many times over again. It is a prosperity, wealth, and health, prosperity preaching gospel. And you look at that and you say, wow, so many people and yet so much false fire, right? So what is true fire? What is genuine worship about? Well, let me begin with this. Genuine worship is about the object of our worship. That's number one, the object of our worship. And if you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Because much of worship today begins with us. Much of worship today begins from an anthropocentric point of view, a man-centered point of view, where we are the center of it all worship oftentimes consists of songs that detail how great God knows us, how well God knows us, how dear we are to God, how much God loves us, and how much God believes in us, and how much God is there for us, as if God lives for us. And certainly there is a sense in which we cannot even begin to describe the boundless, eternal love of God for His people. But that is not where worship begins. Worship begins with the object of our worship. When the book of Hebrews says, let us draw near, I would remind you that what that language is referring back to is the priests approaching the holy God of Israel. They were approaching Yahweh in worship. And I thought, where can we go to see not emotionalism, not showmanship, not a talent show Christianity, not a concert-feel sound or a technologically-based worship experience, but where do we go to get an unmitigated, raw look at the object of our worship, which is God? I thought Revelation chapter 4 is as good a place as any. And so here we are. Notice the nature of the worship of the God of eternity. There are several things that are stressed, but nothing is stressed more in all of this arrangement of worship. Nothing is expressed more than than, than the greatness of God's holiness and the greatness of God's power. Revelation 4, 5 Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Again, this is anthropomorphic language of John the visionary, the seer, attempting to harness with limited finite human words what he was seeing to the best of his ability, and what he said is that it was lightning and sound and peals of thunder. Now, we live in Texas. We know a little bit about peals of thunder. <laughs> the other day we had a storm. It literally felt like the lightning was going to come through the, through the windows of the house. It was so powerful, bright, loud, the peals of thunder. You know, my dog kept getting up and moving from one room to the another, just getting scared. You know, my wife kept saying, are you checking the weather? Are you checking the weather? Yes, I'm checking the weather. There's nothing else I can do. I know it feels like a tornado is about to come in the house, but I'm checking the weather. God's thunder is scary. In the, uh, in the weather, in the atmosphere around us, can you imagine it in heaven? Thunder. There were seven lamps before, a fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God, I think representative of seven ministries that the spirit is said to hold in Scripture, but uh, we we can't get to that. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center, around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, which are symbolic of the omniscience of God, all seen. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, and the third creature... Had a face like of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come." And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will, they exist and were created. Nothing here about how God knows your story. Nothing here about how God believes in you. Nothing here about how God is cheering you on. Nothing here about how God needs you. Everything here is about the greatness and the immutability of the holiness and power of Almighty God. Heaven is a place where God fits us. He renovates our bodies to have the capacity to withstand His glory. Heaven is a place where we are renovated to be able to bear the glory of God. That is what glorification is about. If He does not glorify us, I think the words that God spoke to Moses on the mountain are fit. You cannot see me and live. He must glorify us or we will not be able to bear the glory. In 1 Kings chapter 8, the priests had just a small glimpse of the glory of God and it says that, they fell down and were incapable of serving. They, they, they tried to perform their priestly duties, but you see, the glory of God was, so, was such that it was unbearable and debilitating so that the priests couldn't even hold up the, 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 the altar, the incense, bring it to the altar. They couldn't do any of it because they were incapacitated by the greatness of the being of the glory of God. Our worship music needs to change. We need to sing about Him. We need to sing about His greatness, His power, His ability, His grace. We don't need to sing about the power of faith. We need to sing about the power of God. We don't need to sing about the goodness of grace. We need to sing about the goodness of God. Faith is not a person. Grace is not a person. Joy is not a person. Hope is not a person. Mercy is not a person. These are the gifts of God, but they are not God. And how many people can't seem to get it right when they appear on national television to talk about the power of faith. I can go on and on there, but I resist the temptation. Only to say this, that this is classic What John Piper and others have long said, that we do not mistake the gifts for the giver. Not only the object of our worship, however, but also the obedience of worship. As great and glorious and as uh, transcendent and wonderful and powerful God is, Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, in Hebrews here, we are being exhorted. This subjunctive verb is in imperatival use, which means it's like a commandment. Draw near. It's not an option. It's a command. It's an exhortation. Let us draw near. You don't have the option to sit on the sidelines of communion with God the christianity is all about pressing in not standing off christianity is all about pressing in to know the lord going in to commune with god pressing into the worship of god going into the presence of god approaching the throne of grace not standing aloof in your spirituality not being a spectator but being a participant in the kingdom of God. There are three aspects of the obedience of worship that I want to point out private, public, and practical. You see, because God wants all of our life, that, that, that means that privately, we also must have communion with God. David said, You desire truth in the inmost parts, in the hidden parts. where you you will make known to me wisdom. Each one of us, therefore, is directly responsible with what Jonathan Edwards would say, keeping up religion in your own heart. Keeping up the faith. Pursuing the love of God, as Jude says. Keep yourself in the love of God. Each one of us, through private prayer, Bible study, meditation, confession, must, in our own private lives, in our own private hearts, must press in to know Him. This also applies to the private life of the home, by the way. The home is a big part of our private life, and in the home, our homes should be about God. I can't wait to welcome a new member into our home. Uh, not because we're so godly or anything but because i can't wait to bring this new member of the family into our home to show him or her that he that he or she is not the center of the world god is which is infinitely more loving than to spoil that child to the point where they think the world revolves around them no God doesn't give us children so that we would create idols out of them. God gives us children so that we would show them that they are not the center. Christ is the center. That God is the center of the universe and that all the planets orbit around Him, not that cute little thing that runs around the house. It's also public. God is also calling us in a life of worship that also affects our public life. Of course, this would then enter into the sphere of the church, where in the church what is expected of us, brothers and sisters, is the worship of God, not the scrutiny of the worship. The worship of God, not the talent of the worship. The worship of God, not the, not the uh, uh, spectating of the worship, not the observation of the worship, Nothing makes me fear more than to think that I would ever become a mere spectator in the house of God, watching the worship of God happen, but not joining in myself. And if that's where you are today, you must repent because you are not in a church. Oh, I know we don't have all the toys and all the things and all the synthesizers and the fog machines and the lights and, you know, we don't have all of the Christian versions of the Britney Spears on stage. I know we don't have a talent show here, even though Jonathan, immensely gifted. I don't know how he does. Anyway. (laughs) But we are not here to analyze the worshipers. Somebody described worship to me in this way. Everyone's singing all the time with all their heart. Art tells a story. He says... Worst thing anybody ever said to me after a church service was, How did you like that worship? To which he responded, What does it matter what I like? It's not for me. <laughs> the only one we seek to please in worship is God. How do you do that? With a pure heart. God doesn't care. Right? He told us, He doesn't care about these external things. He looks upon the broken and contrite heart. Jesus said, these people, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You could be up on stage rocking out in a Christian concert with 10,000 people and a throng of singing, and yet your heart is as far away from the throne of God as an atheist True worship penetrates all of life, and that's the practical part of it. You know what's amazing about true worship? If you look at the New Testament, remarkably, there are very few directions on singing. There are very few directions on music. There are very few directions on instruments. There's very few directions on the style of the singing, the kind. Sorry, there are those among us that believe that we should be singing psalms only. Problem is, the psalms tell you to to worship with music and with instruments. (laughs) But there's scarcely um, any material in the New Testament that directs us towards this. You know what the New Testament is primarily concerned with? Conduct. Isn't that amazing? As it pertains to the Christian uh, worship service, to the technical meeting of the church, what you find is evidence where God is more concerned and preoccupied with the conduct, the heart, the reverence, the behavior of his people than the style. We are told to be reverent. In the church, Hebrews twelve twenty nine. We are told to be orderly in the church, first Corinthians four forty, fourteen forty. We are told to be modest in the church, first Timothy two nine. We are told to be generous in the worship service of the church, second Corinthians eight through nine. We are told to be prayerful in the church. Turn with me in your Bibles if you would. First Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter two, just to point out something remarkable here. When it actually comes to posture in the church, we get some details. Remarkably, what God is concerned with is the humility of the men and the modesty of the women. Isn't that remarkable? That's what what God cares about more than anything. He doesn't care about so quality. He says in verse 8, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, Therefore, I want men everywhere and every place to pray. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Brothers, when was the last time you raised your hands up to heaven during worship? This is prescribed. This is not described. I'm not saying that we should all go around now, and as soon as Jonathan comes back up here, everybody goes like this. I heard a pastor say that because he read this verse, he read the verse, didn't say really anything about it, he read the verse, and he panicked and he said, oh, don't worry, I'm not taking you down the path of charismatic theology. I said, what? You can't even read the verse? That's what the verse says. It says, lift your hands without wrath or dissension. You know what that means? It means probably this, guys. It does not mean women cannot lift their hands with wrath and dissension. Of course not. But I think it's stressing a point that men typically, the way they're wired, they are more given to be angry. They are more given to be divisive and stirring trouble in the church theologically. And God is very much after them in terms of their humility, So, that the lifting of the hands in the worship service is not just a symbol of humility, watch this, it is a symbol of unity. Because to do this with a false heart, boy, how false does it have to be? When you don't even like the preacher, and you don't even like the teaching, and you don't even like the members, and you don't even like the brothers. And you don't even like the sisters. How false do you have to be to come in here and lift your hands up to God? No, this is a sign that says, I love you, and I love these people, and we surrender together. Practically speaking, and, and we can go on and on and on with this. Practically speaking, as I said, all of life is considered worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, he says here, present your bodies, which basically means the totality of your being. In other words, it really represents the whole life. In other words, God wants our whole life on the altar. What that means, brothers and sisters, is that there are no spheres into which we can go. That means the husband doesn't have a workshop in the garage where God is not invited. It means that we have no hobbies and we have no, no, no private interests of our own where God is not sovereign, where God is not supreme. No, this is a call that the biblical call of worship is to make God preeminent in all of life. Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do all what? To the glory of God. All of life is worship. But going from a general 10,000 foot view of worship to a microscopic view or even more precise to an intimate view of worship to a, to a, a view of worship that gets to us individually notice where Hebrews goes with this Hebrews 10.22 let us draw near with a sincere heart two prepositional phrases here with a sincere heart and in full assurance of faith. In other words, just as much as God wants all of your life, which may be visible to people around you, to be devoted to Him, what is of optimum importance here is your heart. Let's get to the heart. Because the author of Hebrews says that the type of heart we ought to have is what can be translated here literally a true heart a true heart in the bible having a true heart means that you have a committed heart that you have a loyal heart that you have a faithful heart a humble heart a truthful heart that is what a heart a a sincere heart looks like hezekiah as he was seeking deliverance for his affliction, said to God, Remember, O Lord, I beseech you. Have I walked before you in truth? He says, How I have walked before you in truth? And then look at the parallel idea with a whole heart. And have done. He says, And have done what is right or what is good in your sight. God in, brought an indictment on Judah because in all of their religious appearances, they tried to deceive God. <laughs> this, this, is, this, is how de, this is how depravity works, by the way. You try to get one over on God <laughs> as if He doesn't know. <laughs> right? He says in Jeremiah 3, He says, in spite of her her treacherous sister Judah, excuse me, yet in spite of all of this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return with me with a whole heart, watch this, but rather was deceptive. They try to compromise their worship, and we know from the Old Testament what that looked like. It was syncretism. They tried to mingle their worship with pagan ideas. and In other words, they tried to inject some worldliness into the worship of Yahweh, and Yahweh rejected it because they didn't obey the covenant. The language of a true heart is amazing because this adjective here, true or sincere, how it's translated here, it only appears in this utilization in a few places in the New Testament, most of them are used of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, where he is given the name True. And how true is Jesus? How faithful and true is he? True, meaning he is real, he is authentic, he's genuine, he is the truthful one, he is the sincere one. That is what he is. And therefore, This is the precondition of genuine worship, drawing near with a sincere heart, which, of course, the opposite of that is to draw near with a hypocritical or false heart. These two things go together, by the way. Look at at the verse again. He He says, drawing near with a sincere heart, watch this now, in full assurance of faith. A remarkable phrase, full assurance of faith. Remarkable. Write it down. Underline it. Memorize it, know it, understand it, because this is what we should all be craving, is it not? This is what we should all be craving, is to have full assurance of faith. Well, if you have a sincere heart, what I would say is that you ought to have full assurance of faith. If you have full assurance of faith, then you ought to have a sincere heart. They go together. They are inseparable. But what's remarkable here is that drawing near with this full assurance of faith it is not that you have full assurance of your faith. Did you, did, you, did you get what I said? It is not that you have full assurance of your personal faith. As if to say that in the worship service, it is an endless act of introspection. That it is an endless act of self-examination. No, folks, eventually the focus has to go from us to God. And this is remarkable because I think it's something like the full assurance that flows from faith. I think that's the way that I would translate it. Turn with me to uh, a parallel. Ready? Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And here faith, I think, is maybe not even speaking of simply personal faith, but also the faith. Also in what we have faith in. Like what we have hope in. Look at the Hebrews 6.11. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so to realize, watch this, the full assurance of hope. Uh, the full assurance of our hope, which means our hope is, uh, is the gospel, Our hope is what the gospel speaks to us about, what the new covenant speaks to us about. Our hope is what the the sacrifice of Jesus speaks to us about. So likewise, full assurance of faith is what the faith of, of, our faith in Jesus' sacrifice and the full assurance of what that should produce. The reason I say that is this, is because the author, he doesn't just give us the heart of worship. But he also gives us very closely related now the basis. Understand, folks, that your personal performance, the degree and the greatness of your faith is not the basis of worship. You understand? that this is the only reason, brothers and sisters, we can come through those doors into these seats, sit here and enjoy God. It is not because... In the degrees of sanctification in this room, we have some that are really sanctified and therefore those people get to enjoy God more. They have greater access, greater joy, greater hope. And then those of us in here who are not maybe as high up on the scale of progressive sanctification, our joy, our worship is much lower and cheaper and not as uh, worthy or not as important. No. Our worship is not on the basis of our merit, our faith, It is not on the basis of our own performance. Our worship is based on the assurance of the substance of our hope, which is the sacrificial work of Christ. Look at the text. Let's draw near with sincere hearts in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So two metaphors there, sprinkling and washing, and both of these return us back to the cultus of the priesthood where sprinkling, the sprinkling of blood was involved, and also the washing, the washing of the priests before they went into the tabernacle to minister was involved. All of that Now, many have pointed out that what's going on here is two things. Number one, the sprinkling is referring to an internal uh, renovation of the heart. The sprinkling is talking about the, the, the fact that our hearts have been renewed. And so an evil conscience really means this, that in the new covenant, our evil conscience, which is what? Which is who we were when we were hostile to God, An evil conscience is who we were when we were not right with God. An evil conscience means the weight of an unconverted mind that is hostile to God weighing upon us. The burden of our heart. It's like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress when the burden is finally rolled away. There is the evil conscience being taken away. It is not that if you sin today, tomorrow, you may not feel crummy about it. You should. But that is not the evil conscience. Sure, God, in His progressive sanctification of His people, sure, He is is sanctifying us to the degree that we don't have terribly uh, smitten consciences, but... That is not what Hebrews is talking about here when it says evil conscience. It is basically the easiest way I can put it is the state of unbelief. Uh, reflect on your own life for a minute. I know for me, I don't know about you, but I know for me that before I was a Christian, I carried around an evil conscience. I knew I wasn't right with God, and I knew that God was out to get me, right? Right? I, God was hounding me. I can look back on my life now. I can see instances. I remember working for that, that, that manager at Thrifty's back in Southern California. Some of you don't know what Thrifty's is, but it's basically a, a convenience store. Did I tell you my error, what I did on the liquor store thing? Anyway, I was preaching at College Station, and I mentioned that I went to a liquor store. And in Southern California, a liquor store is just a convenience store. It's nothing else. But out here, I guess, a liquor store is only like where you go to buy booze. (laughs) So I got up and preached in front of this church. I said, yeah, you know, I was at a liquor store, you know. (laughs) And people were like, huh? (laughs) You went to the booze store down the street? What? (laughs) See how gracious God is to me? The things he has to endure in the, you know. where was I? Yes. But I can remember looking back working for that 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 manager of that store and how he would preach the gospel to me and how I knew I was getting ready to go out partying for the night and the last thing I wanted to see is see my Christian manager who would throw little jabs at me. My stepfather would preach to me from time to time. I would have a little Gideon Bible in my room. I would keep it away from all my friends and didn't want to let anybody know I had that. And at night, sometimes even after coming home and having done terrible things, I would open it up and I would read it and it would scare me to death. One time I remember distinctly I had uh, done something off. I'd gotten in a terrible fight. I got home and I opened up the Bible and my hands fell on the passage that talked about woe to those who are swift to shed innocent blood. And I threw the book across the room. It scared me to death. And I can tell you, time after time after time after time where my conscience smited me. That is an evil conscience. And that conscience was taken away by the blood of Jesus. No more. Now I was looking for that office manager. Matter of fact, I tried to find him after I got saved, and I I failed to do so. I'll meet him in heaven, I suppose. But we're also externally washed it says here we're washed with pure water and many theologians see here an early reference to baptism because baptism essentially has replaced all of the ordinances of the old testament the external washing but what does it speak of it speaks of not only the cleansing of the heart but the outward corresponding sign of baptism and the miracle of conversion that's what it is We approach God on the basis that Jesus' blood is powerful enough to convert us and therefore, brothers and sisters, to transform us. In closing, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, because I want you to see that what this is saying is that on the, on the basis of the new covenant work of Jesus, we have been transformed externally, internally. The whole person has been transformed, and as we know, we are being renewed day by day. We're being renewed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, only because here, The Apostle Paul is dealing with precisely the same subject, namely the New Covenant. And what he's showing us here is that what has come in the New Covenant is superior to what they had in the Old Covenant because of the transforming power that it possesses. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. You see this? And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. In other words, no one can claim to be part of the new covenant with an untransformed life. It doesn't matter how loud you sing. It doesn't matter how well your music sounds. It doesn't matter how many Dove Awards you have. It doesn't matter how many platforms you get invited to. If you maintain that part of genuine Christian worship is that God loves you just as you are and you can remain just as you are, your worship is false. The new covenant at the very root of it Is transformative. It transforms us. And it is awe-inspiring, too, because we're told that under the old covenant, what we were looking at in the old covenant can be summed up in this image right here: the fading glory of Moses' face. Isn't that remarkable? The nature of the old covenant can be summed up in this image, the fading glory of moses face it goes on to say that the israelites could not even look intently at the face of moses because of the glory that was showing on his face even though it was fading and what was that glory speaking of it was speaking about the terrors of the law so that they didn't want to look intently at it. But now we have a glory that far surpasses the fading glory of Moses because we have a ministry not of condemnation, but a ministry of righteousness, life, and the Spirit. That's what it is. In the language of the Apostle Paul, therefore, there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ, if you struggle with condemnation, I can guarantee you that you struggle with assurance, because assurance and condemnation do not go together. But what the beauty and the glory and the power of the new covenant is telling us is that the work of Jesus on the cross is such... Not only that you should not feel condemned, but that you should know that you have full assurance of faith. You see how liberating that is. And so, what the new covenant is telling us to do is press in, draw near to God, no doubting, no wavering, no condemnation, no doubt. Because you have been liberated by the blood of Jesus from an evil conscience. And guess what? Through baptism, probably, you have an outward symbol of what has transpired. Namely, that as it were, your whole body has now been ritually cleansed. Oh, you're so right. You don't deserve to come near. You're so right. You are filthy in and of yourself. You are so right. In and of ourselves, all we have is filthy rags. We will never, ever, ever walk into the church and had such a good week that we deserve to be here. We will always come into this church, go into your prayer closet, go into a prayer circle, teach a Bible study, lead something Lead family worship, family devotions. You will always do that, brothers and sisters, not on the merits of your own good works, ever, 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 ever. Matter of fact, the best week you have ever had as a Christian falls infinitely short of what is required in order for you to draw near to God. You are always and only going to draw near on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed to your account through his atoning work and through his justifying grace. This is the gospel. The new covenant is all about the gospel. Let's pray before I think of something else to say. Father, oh Father, how true it is We do not deserve to draw near. Like Abraham, it is not of works. Otherwise, it would be his due. When we draw near to you and you accept us into your favor and into your presence, you are not repaying us for our good works. You are blessing us because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Would you not, God, by the power and the ministry of your spirit, would you not speak encouragement to heritage grace? Would you not speak liberty to a heavy heart? Would you not speak freedom to the condemned? I've said all I can say. I've preached what I can preach And now, God, we are wholly and totally dependent upon you to move and to apply by your Spirit, your Word, for your glory. Thank you, Lord. Bless our time. Bless our fellowship, Lord. Even the meal, the potluck, the fellowship we're about to engage in, that's all of grace. We're here by grace. And lastly, Lord, I pray for heritage grace. I pray that your grace would sanctify us, that on the basis of such unspeakable grace, we would grow with respect to holiness for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.